0: I forgot I had to do this today, I was just sitting down there, I was was going to be content with the scripture, that pretty much preached itself, but I got something so we'll talk about it. Uh, (laughs) uh, It's good to see you all this morning, Uh, thanks for uh, paying attention to your alarm and getting up, Uh, change of time, right, forward, that's good, everybody loves it, right, let's hear it for spring forward. Then you wake up to that weather out there, right? Not cool, Texas. Not cool. We don't like that. Well, I'm glad you're here anyways. Everybody upstairs, good morning to you. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name is Johnny. I serve as the lead pastor of this worship community that we call The Well here at First Methodist Mansfield. Uh, I'm going to put on the screen uh, the scripture that Brian read for us, uh, just in case you missed that and you want to look, uh, look on as we, as we talk about it here over the next uh, few minutes. Uh, How did it sound up there, Cafe? Sound good this week? If y'all don't know down here, they, they couldn't hear it last week, the scripture that Katie read so beautifully. They just saw your mouth moving, and so, <laughs> sorry about that. But I, I hope you could hear it this morning. It was great. Brian did an awesome job. Uh, we are in a series, this is the second week of our series, called Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time. It's, what, it's a journey that we're going on through the season of Lent uh, that we have in the church that is uh, interested in looking at the Gospel of Luke and how Jesus is portrayed there in that so that we can meet Jesus again. And that's kind of the whole point. So here we are, uh, week two of that. And last week, what we looked at was this, these first four verses, these kind of awkward little verses at the beginning of Luke, that kind of helps set the table for us for what Luke hopes to accomplish. And, and what that is, is uh, that Luke wants to present an orderly account of the life and ministry of Jesus, so that the reader might have confidence in the things that they have heard about Jesus. Really, essentially, the the question that Luke is trying to answer is, who is this Jesus exactly? Right? And so he's trying to sort out what is true and what is not true so that when we meet Jesus, we recognize Jesus and we might have faith in Jesus. So as we embark on this journey uh, through Lent as a church, as a people reading the gospel of Luke on our own and also uh, exploring it here uh, in church and in our small groups, when we seek to meet Jesus, we bring with us baggage, right? Because uh, I'm going to go out on a limb here that if you are here, you're upstairs, and whether or not you would call yourself a Christian or identify as a, yourself as a Christ follower, you've probably heard of Jesus. And in some way, you've heard the name, you've, uh, you have some idea of who Jesus is based on the uh, the people that have called themselves Jesus, Jesus followers that you've met in your life, could have been Sunday school teachers growing up, pastors, who knows? But you've heard about Jesus. You have some idea about who Jesus is and what Jesus is up to uh, in the world. And we have that baggage. We bring all that stuff with us. doesn't matter if it's good or bad or accurate or not. We bring it because it's what we know about Jesus. But along the way to meeting Jesus again, Means that when we encounter Jesus, we might find some things that we're carrying with us that uh, will be affirmed, encouraged. We will have confidence that the thing that we brought with us about Jesus is, is true. But there also might be some things that we bring with us that when we meet Jesus, that thing we thought we knew about Jesus might not be true. It might get challenged. Uh, it might have to change. We might get asked to leave that behind, to set it down and discover something new. And hopefully as we rediscover who Jesus is and what Jesus is up to, we might find out what we are called to do as a part of that. Because our faith is meant for so much more than just sorting out and settling what is true and what, what is not true. But it's about living into a story, God's story as told through Jesus. So... I'm going to start with this word change, though, right? That's a weird word. It's a funny word because I can say that word, and everybody in this room and everybody upstairs has a different reaction to that word, right? You have this sort of reflex when you hear the word change, right? It's either good or it's bad, right? Like, I could say there's some things that we all agree are bad, like spring forward, right? Changing our clocks forward at 2 a.m., we can all agree. That's just evil. I don't know why that has happened in our world, and it needs to go away quickly, But there are some of us uh, that love change, right? You know those people. You might be one of those people. Like every couple weeks, you're rearranging the furniture in the house. You're constantly thinking about what colors you want to paint and repaint, right? You're always changing. You have all kinds of things. Anytime new technology comes out, you're right on it. You want it. You want to change it. You know your life. You're just adaptable, right? You're moving left and right. And some of you, you're like, yes, I love change. And there's those of you that don't like change. And you look at those people, and you're like, those people wear me out. Right, There are people that hate change, and you would say that about yourself. I hate change, right? Like you haven't changed your hairstyle since like 72, and <laughs> you still have the flip phone, right? You're holding, you're holding firm to that Palm Pilot. You're like, this is coming back, everybody. This is, this is the thing. Some of you don't even know what a Palm Pilot is. <laughs> we all know them. Some of us are them, right? People that love change or hate change. But the truth of the matter is, is uh, everybody likes change. (gasps) Really? Let me prove it to you. If you all left today, every single one of you, right? And you went down and you bought a lottery ticket and you filled it out. I'm not condoning the lottery, but if you did, hypothetically, and you filled it out and then you find out that you won the lottery, You don't go, ugh, now my bank account's going to (laughs) change. Duh, nuts. This is the worst. I hate change. If, though, by some chance that is you and you do win the lottery, let me know. I'll pass the offering plate around again and we'll make sure that it goes right in there. I I don't want you to feel uncomfortable. Now, we embrace change like that because it benefits us, right? It makes us feel good. It, 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 there's something gained, and, that, and that's what we see. And when we gain something out of the change, we totally embrace it. We'll receive that change no problem. It's not change we dislike, it's disruption. Because with change comes loss also. And on that scale of what is gained and what is lost, when we look at a new thing that is happening, a change that might enter our life, we react to that new thing. We react to that change based on where on the scale we perceive that change to be, right? Are we mostly gaining things? Okay, well, then I'll receive that. And there might be some things lost, but I will grieve those, mourn those, but we will adapt and move on. But if most, if most of it's loss. We tend to see that as too big a disruption. And instead of receiving that change, instead of receiving that new thing, we resist it. We push back against it. Whether or not our resistance will actually stop the change, we still resist. We either won't accept it and we'll deny it or uh, instead we just become bitter. We push against it and it becomes something that just blocks our life. We either receive or resist change based on how disruptive we perceive it to be. In our lives. Now, I don't want us to be too hasty here and jump ahead and start making assumptions about people who embrace change and people who uh, reject it, those that receive it or or resist it, and disruption in general, because all of those things are neutral. Because sometimes a, a disruption may happen in our life that is actually a good thing, it's, a, it's good for us. And we might resist it because we perceive it to be too much of a, uh, a disruption, but it, we, it actually would uh, make our lives better. It would actually transform us and renew us. Not always. Sometimes that disruption is bad and it must be rejected. Sometimes loss happens in our lives, things that are unexpected. Change happens in our life that is not good. Just conversely... Not all change is good, so it shouldn't be received, and not all change is bad. It's just, those are all neutral terms, but we just have to identify the fact that when we feel resistance, understanding what it is that we resist, or when we uh, jump to receive something new, understanding what it is that we might be losing in the process is important. The main theme of the second week of this series, what we'll talk about in this scripture that was read for us today today. Uh, is to challenge ourselves to encounter the story of Jesus, and then this story in particular, with fresh eyes and open hearts and open minds. That as we read it and as we look through it, that we jump to a lot of assumptions that we have about some of the people and the words that we read, but to abandon those in order to maybe find something new that might transform us. And that we might see the disruption that grace actually causes in the world. And how some people receive it. And how others resist it. We can see how Jesus becomes this sort of figure that disrupts the places that he goes, right? And and people either receive that disruption in faith. Or they resist it. So... What Luke presents for us here in chapter 5 is a radical call, of a person named Levi, and then a radical response by that same person. Much like the disciples before Levi, right? In a few chapters before, if you've been reading along in Luke throughout Lent, you you are aware of this, that there are disciples that have been called, say, Jesus says, follow me, and they do. They drop everything, and then they go. They just leave. Up to this point, uh, Luke uh, tells us that there are three Peter, James, John, right? They went fishing, and Jesus says, I'll make you fishers of men, come with me. That's Peter, James, and John. Uh, there are two other Gospels that tell this story. Mark and Matthew both tell it. And at this point, they would also add Andrew, who is Peter's brother, uh, in the mix. They, Luke doesn't mention him for some reason. I don't know if he was like the annoying little brother that was like tagging along, you know? I don't, I don't know. But for whatever reason, Luke doesn't mention him. Uh, he does later, but not now. So there's either three or four disciples Coming up as they meet this guy named Levi. But this time, Jesus isn't calling a fisherman. But that was kind of scandalous enough because fishermen were uneducated, uh, they were unworthy of being the disciples of a rabbi. Uh, Not that they were bad people or awful people um, in this time, but they just they were fishermen, right? That they had they had a skill and a job, that they made money, they were not considered the most intelligent people in the world, and so a rabbi calling fishermen away uh, was kind of scandalous, and not only that, it kind of left their family in the lurch there, right? It's a family business, that's how things worked then. Uh, It was a trade, and they probably left a lot of people out to dry because they were moving. But this time he's calling a tax collector, not just a fisherman. And if you've been around church any amount of time, and you've heard any preacher preach on tax collectors based on the Bible, you you might already know how disruptive this might be. But for those of you that don't, or that might need a refresher, uh, I just want to quickly say that we cannot relate tax collectors in uh, the 21st century to that of the first century. Right? They're they're very different. Uh, not at all relatable. Not at all uh, uh, comparable. In our, uh, in our society today, a tax collector is part of, it's like one person is part of a huge network full of checks and balances, uh, right? A part of this huge system. But in the first century, there was something different. The literature of the time, including the New Testament writings, portrays tax collectors as totally despised by all people. Uh, Greeks, Jews, everybody. Everyone hated them, Right? If you're not familiar how tax collecting worked in the first century, I have a, a very unofficial, like uh, here's the hierarchy right here. Caesar wants taxes, right? Caesar rules Rome, ro- Rome rules everything, uh, and they need taxes, right? And so they will appoint, the kind of the central government appoints these regional tax authorities, right? Usually already wealthy people, and they would sign a contract and say, I get to be the person to collect the taxes. And so they would sign that contract and they would do that. Then that regional authority would appoint a local person in the town. That's important. A local person in the town to then be the chief tax collector. You might have heard of somebody like Zacchaeus in other stories, right? Levi. uh, He's probably lower on the list than than chief. But we have chief tax collector. And if the town or the, the area is big enough, the chief tax collector might have Lower tax collectors. They could be slaves or, or other people they've just appointed to do so. Now, let's say Caesar wants $5, right? They don't use dollars, but let's say Caesar wants $5 from every person. That's the tax, right? Uh, the regional tax authority would tell uh, the local chief that the tax is $6 or $7. And so then the local chief tax collector would tell the tax collectors, you need to go collect $9 from everybody. Right, And then the tax collectors were walking around, hey, taxes have gone up this year. They're 10 bucks, man. And so they would take the 10 bucks. that tax collector would keep a dollar, then send everything up, and then they would keep what they wanted, and they would just go up, 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 right? And everybody gets their cut. And you could just, I mean, Caesar didn't care. Just give me my 5 bucks. you do whatever you want, right? Whatever you can get, you can get. That's how they made their money. And so everybody was skimming off the top. You can see how quickly the corruption comes in, and you can quickly see how the hatred pours in. Everybody hated them. And for Jews, especially, and the religious leaders of the time, to add to the financial oppression oppression was this ceremonial impurity, right? Because of the type of business they did and who they were with. So lots of these chief tax collectors and the lower tax collectors were Jewish people appointed to collect money from their own people. So not only do you have the ceremonial impurity, but you also have this, like, treason element, right? Like this traitor sort of persona, because you're taken from your own people and you're giving to the people that conquered you, that oppress you, the people that you feel to be against God's purposes and God's people, how could you do such a thing? So we understand now how, when we look at Levi, how much of an outcast, he, how that label of outcast is somewhat deserved, right? And there's no way that somebody like this could be a part of the people of God, right? But then Jesus walks along and seems to think so. And he just simply says, follow me. We could read a lot into, you know, uh, uh, Levi's uh, personal feelings about what it is that he did, but Luke doesn't tell us any of that. We could read in a lot to the way Jesus said that to Levi, but Luke doesn't tell us any of that. We could read it how we want, but Jesus says, follow me. Levi gets up. And follows him. Leaves it behind. Leaves his tax booth behind and follows Jesus. Upon hearing that invitation, he gets up, leaves the life that he knew before, and starts following Jesus. And goes in a new direction. So elated by this new direction and this new life and this call from Jesus, he throws a big party in Jesus' honor. And to celebrate this new life that he has found, right? He invites all his friends... But since nobody likes him, all of his friends are just other tax collectors that come in. Because nobody wants to be there. It's all people that were rejected just like he's rejected. Nobody else would come because table fellowship in this time, this is like an honor culture, right? Table fellowship meant full acceptance of one another as equals, right? Full acceptance of those that gathered around the table with you. So you're not likely to find anybody who's not like them around the table because nobody wants to be associated with them. Nobody wants to accept them. But then there's Jesus at the table, right in the midst of them. And this is where it gets a little sticky. It's where the drama comes in a little bit because while this party is going on and everybody's having a great time, and there's Jesus with all these tax collectors, who's peeping through the window, right? The Pharisees are there. Now, when we hear that word, like right, you immediately know, oh, those are the bad guys, right? Pharisees are the bad guys. We bring a lot of baggage with us when when we meet Jesus, but we also bring a lot of baggage when we meet other characters in Scripture things that we've known or been taught all our lives, and, and especially when it comes to the Pharisees. There's a lot of things that we've learned. There's a lot of things I think we need to unlearn about the Pharisees here that, that hopefully will paint them uh, in a picture that is a little more fair of who they were and actually a little more useful and a little more powerful for our Scripture today because we too often in the church are guilty of like this broad brush painting of Pharisees. We like oversimplify them and caricature them uh, in their worst traits and in their worst moments and kind of say that's how they all are all the time. Pharisees, if you're not aware of them, uh, are not priests like the Sadducees. Uh, Their center of activity was not the temple, it was the synagogue. So they're in all these little towns, and and that's where they were. That's the center uh, of their ministry, and the center of their faith was Scripture. The written scripture and the oral traditions that would follow that, which is often can called the law, right? The law of Moses. So this is the center of their ministry is, and the synagogue and the center of their faith is scripture. That sounds good so far. And much of their time, or you would say maybe their ministry, was spent helping people understand what scripture meant. I mean, you have to remember at this time, nobody has